Hello, Beth Kuhn, and welcome to our study of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, Maase Hashlichim. This is our first week in the text together, but before we get into chapter one, let's review a bit what I shared last week in the introduction. So first, terminology. We went through two words, uh, apostles and congregation. So for apostles, the Greek word is apostolos, or the Hebrew equivalent shlichim, which means sent ones, apostles, anyone who is sent out as an emissary or ambassador of the person who sent them. For congregation, ekklesia is the Greek word, the Hebrew equivalent kahal, means just an assembly, a congregation of people. It doesn't denote any religious uh, reasons for gathering. It is just simply an assembly. All right, moving on from our terminology, we checked our assumptions last week, recalling that the irrevocable election of Israel is never really called into question anywhere in Luke-Acts, and it is an essential assumption to have when trying to understand Luke's writings. We saw how the structure of Acts establishes an oscillating pattern for the going out of Yeshua's sent ones, from Jerusalem to increasingly farther destinations and back again to Jerusalem. As we'll see in the the first few verses of chapter 1, the eventual restoration of Jerusalem and Israel is a foregone conclusion and not a matter that the apostles will be tasked with. Their focus is going to be elsewhere while the Father works his plan for Israel's restoration in his timing. We saw that the Messianic community is also in transition. They had the physical presence of Yeshua, as Luke documented in the first part of his writings. Then Yeshua ascended, announcing that they would receive the Spirit to assist them as they took up the mantle of being Yeshua's witnesses to humanity. They were called to be God's speaking in the world, a task we are now called to continue. And we answer the question, why Acts now? For one, it's time to get back into this very important text as we here at Beth keep moving forward toward maturity. The book of Acts presents the prototype of the Messianic community, undiluted by the passing of time and cultural influences. It's the Messianic mission in its purest form. So, let's turn our attention now to chapter 1 of the book of Acts. As I go through these lessons, I'll try to stick to the same format. First, I'll offer a brief review of the previous teaching. Second, I'll highlight any important terms that we see in each week's portion. Third, after a reading of the text, I'll present some commentary I've collected from various sources and draw out of it food I believe we need to chew on as a community now. So, first up, new terminology. We have two this week. One is the Greek word martyrs, which is translated as witnesses in chapter 1, verse 8. Martyrs appears 34 times in the Greek scriptures, 13 in Acts, which is the highest concentration of the use of this word, one time in Luke, and then five times in Revelation, which is the second highest concentration of the word, Marturus. Marturus can be understood as someone who can declare with confidence what he himself has seen or heard or knows by another means. It's actually where we get the word martyr, which means something very different to modern minds, but related. A 
martyr is one who makes great sacrifices or suffers such or suffers much in order to further a belief. So martyrus is really the furthering of the belief portion of the modern definition of martyr, so to speak. The root of the equivalent Hebrew word um, uh, equivalent to martyrus is ud. Uh, that's ayin vav dalet, and it means or it can be translated as to return, to do again, to repeat or say again and again. Think of a large crowd before there were PA systems. Um, if there was no amphitheater available and a big crowd had gathered to hear someone speak, there would be a series of repeaters who relayed what they heard to people farther and farther away in the landscape. They'd be dotted out from the center out. They would hear the speaker or hear the repeater behind them, and then they would repeat that at full volume so that everyone could hear. Um, so that's martyrus. <clears throat> baptisma is the second word, or baptizo. Uh, in verse 5, we see this occur in this, in this chapter. Uh, baptisma appears 80 times in the Greek scriptures. Again, Acts has the highest concentration of this word with 22 of those instances. It is translated as baptism, submersion, immersion. Um, and what I want to do right now is I kind of want to set the record straight here a little regarding baptism. Okay, so immersion in water for ritual purification was a common Jewish custom and part of Jewish life in the first century and before. It had been around for a while before the first century uh, John the Immerser didn't invent it, Yeshua didn't invent it, and Christianity didn't institute it. Also, it's not a sacrament. Jews immersed to remove Levitical impurity. It was a symbolic cleansing regularly practiced by observant Jews. Baptism entailed a full body immersion into naturally flowing water, what we or what is called living water. It symbolizes the passing from one state to another state, not from going from Ohio to Pennsylvania, but for going from one physical, spiritual, mental, professional, social state to another. Think marriage or starting a new profession. Milestone changes in the life of a Jew at the time. Somewhere along the way in Christianity, baptism became a sacrament associated almost exclusively with the remission of sins. In other words, there was no other baptism. But that just wasn't the reality in the time of the apostles. Okay, so we've gone over terminology. Now let's read the text together. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible, and I've taken the liberty of changing a few proper names to the Hebrew and added a couple definitive articles that I'll point out a little later. And I'll probably be doing this every time. I'll take the New American Standard and change a few things to make it, uh, make it I think, a little better reading. Okay, so here we go, Acts chapter 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Yeshua began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had given orders by the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of forty days and speaking of, the, of things regarding the kingdom of God. Gathering them together... He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, 
you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they began asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? But he said to them, It is not for you to know periods of time or appointed times, which the Father has sent, set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and as far as the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were watching, and a cloud took him up out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, then behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Yeshua, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they entered the city, they went up to the upstairs room or the upper room where they were staying. That is, Peter, John, Jacob, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these were continually devoting themselves with one mind to the prayers along with the women, and Miriam, the mother of Yeshua, and with his brothers. At this time, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters, a group of about 120 people was there together, and said, Brothers, the, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Yeshua. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of all, in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all the residents of Jerusalem. As a result, that field was called Hakeldama, in their own language, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his residence be made desolate, and may there be none living in it. And... May another take his office. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Yeshua went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Eustace, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all people. Show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them. And the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning of the chapter and walk through these scenes together. In verses 1 and 2, Luke has dedicated this book to Theophilus, most likely his benefactor, who paid for Luke to do the research and writing of this account. It was common at the time for wealthy individuals to commission authors to write books, and Luke would have needed this financial support as he did the necessary research pre-internet 
and traveled extensively with Paul. Luke reminds Theophilus of his previous account on the life of Yeshua and that this account is the continuation of that story. In verse 3, it says he presented himself. Yeshua appeared to people primarily to ordain them as his apostles. To be an eyewitness, one needs to witness with his own eyes. Apostleship required a visitation from the risen Messiah, except for Paul, who refers to himself as one not fit to be called an apostle. This is why we don't see the office of apostle continue past the original generation of Yeshua's disciples. Keep in mind that Yeshua had appeared to hundreds of people, any number of whom would have been his witnesses to the world, not just the few men we call the apostles. Verse 4, they were not to leave Jerusalem. In other words, stay together. They will have just witnessed Yeshua's miraculous departure from their midst. Staying together in one place was vitally important for them as they processed what was happening and began to grasp what the future was to look like as they transitioned. Regroup, talk about these things about uh, before you are then sent out again. And as always, Jerusalem is your center. Verse 5, baptized with the Holy Spirit. Yeshua, I believe, was telling his disciples to anticipate the same sort of inaugural full-body immersion into the Spirit that he had experienced at the outset of his mission here on earth. In this way, they were becoming more like Yeshua as the one who sends them. Verses 6 through 8, restoring the kingdom to Israel. As I mentioned last week, this is the last question recorded that Yeshua's disciples ask him before he ascends. It is a chief concern. Yeshua's response is, basically, it's not your concern. I have something else for you to do here. Israel's restoration is certain, and it will happen in God's timing. Also of note here is that verse 8 is essentially the outline of the rest of the book of Acts. They were filled with the Holy Spirit in the next chapter, chapter 2. Witnesses in Jerusalem, chapters 3 through the beginning of 8. In all Judea and Samaria, chapters 8 through 12. And to the ends of the earth, chapters 13 to 28. Just something interesting. Verse 10, we see two men in white clothing. Now, according to the Torah, a minimum of two witnesses is required to affirm the truthfulness of something. These two men, angels, are giving testimony to what they know to be true. They are doing what the apostles had been doing in their training under Yeshua, going out two by two. Verse 12, a Sabbath day's journey away. Okay, this is an important verse if we're to understand who the author is and who he's writing to. What the verse doesn't say is a day's journey. It says, a Sabbath day's journey. What is a Sabbath day's journey, you ask? A Sabbath day's journey refers to the distance one may walk outside the city on the Sabbath before you violate the commandment, remain every man in his place, let no one go out of his place on the seventh day, in Exodus 16, verse 29. The Torah rules in Numbers 35, verses 4 through 5, that a distance of 2,000 cubits beyond the city walls may be considered within the city limits. Therefore, a Sabbath day's journey 
is any journey that is within 2,000 cubits, uh, that's two-thirds of a mile, beyond the city walls. You could walk anywhere and forever long you wanted within the city on the Sabbath, but there was a Sabbath limit for how far outside the city you could go. Okay, so why is this important? Including this piece of information demonstrates that Luke knows his readership, observed the Sabbath, and kept the standard way of walking out the commandment regarding a permissible Sabbath day's walk. If his readers were not Sabbath keepers, this would have been a meaningless inclusion. Got it? Okay. Verse 13, the upper room. The, the Greek word here is huperoan, which is the highest part of the house, usually a room built onto the flat roof of a house. And they vary in sizes, small, large, and anything in between. According to tradition, and because of the definite article here in front of the Greek word, the disciples were staying in the same furnished upper room where they had, cre- where they had I'm sorry, celebrated the Passover Seder with Yeshua. It was, a large enough, it was large enough for them, and it would have been the perfect place for them to all be together. Now, verse 14, the prayer. Let's firmly root into our minds that when the disciples of Yeshua prayed, especially when it says they prayed continually, as in the last verse of Luke's gospel, it was at least the ancient Hebrew liturgical prayers. The prayers, or the prayer, was well understood to Luke's readership as a reference to the Amidah prayers, the 18 benedictions. And here, the Greek word prosuke, or prosukes, the equivalent to tefillah in the Septuagint, is preceded by a definite article again, the, pronounced te, te prosuke, the prayers. Now, this isn't to say that there were no impromptu prayers offered, There certainly would have been, but the prayers can be understood as the Hebrew prayers that Yeshua would have taught his disciples to pray, being a good rabbi. A more literal reading of the verse might be, these all were persevering with one accord, the prayer and the supplication. The supplication also referring to another set of known uh, known liturgical prayers called takhanun, a prayer that is still practiced in Jewish communities. And I have a copy of uh, the Takanun prayer here. It is the supplication. If you, I'm not going to read it for you, but if you ever see a Jewish man praying and he, is, he has his head on his arm or his head in his hands, that is the traditional posture one, one takes when reciting the, the Takanun prayer, the supplications. Okay, so already in the first chapter, we have two pieces of evidence that Luke was at the very least affirming the Torah and Sabbath-keeping Jewish believers in Yeshua, at the very least. What we'll see as we continue through Acts is that the author's position never really changes. Finally, we end the chapter, verses 15 to 26, with the vacant seat. No doubt during the days they were all together in Jerusalem in the upper room, waiting to receive the Holy Spirit, they talked about a lot of things, but not without first spending time in prayers, of course. And one of the points of discussion was the seat left vacant by the betrayal of Yehuda Ishkriot, Judas Iscariot. They knew that there would be twelve thrones on which the twelve disciples would sit in judgment of the tribes. 
Yeshua told them so in Matthew 19, verse 28. And the question arose as to whether or not to leave the seat vacant. So there would have been much discussion about this matter, with passages of Scripture being recalled to help them know how to decide the matter. In other words, they were arguing and debating halakha. Halakha, of course, being Hebrew for how you walk it out. The two passages that Peter puts forward to argue for and against replacing Ishkriot are from the book of Psalms. Against replacement, Psalm 69, 26, which says, May his residence be made desolate, and may there be none living in it. For replacement, Psalm 109, verse 8, May another take his office. The argument itself was not recorded by Luke, or maybe it was edited out. But in the end, they decided to replace Yehuda Ishkriot. Going back to the beginning of the section in verse 15, like I said before, this upper room was a big room, especially if 120 people could fit into it. Verse 17, the word here for share in Greek is kleros, which can also be translated lot, which leads us to the last point in this episode. Verse 26, they drew lots for them. Casting lots for Ishkriot's successor. Is that how you would have done it? (laughs) Clearly, God would not want us to regularly practice random decision-making, right? However, there is biblical precedent for casting lots to make a decision. In Proverbs 16.33, it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from Adonai. In Joshua 7, verse 14, the Lord is selecting by lot the one who will be designated for destruction. In Numbers 33, verse 54, portions of the land are given out by lot. And in 1 Samuel 10, 19-20, Saul is chosen as king by lot. So in the case of replacing Ishkriot, they had nominated two equally qualified candidates, and casting lots was a completely appropriate way to settle the matter. They prayed first, of course, for God to reveal it to them, and then they cast lots either rolling dice, pulling a piece of broken pottery with a name written on it out of a jar, etc. There were, there were several ways in which to do this. We are not at all used to this method of decision-making, and that's okay. Um, better our default be to not cast lots than to over-rely on this method. However, there is biblical precedent for it. Just to give a practical example, the money we raised, Bethacun, during our Purim party went to a ministry that was decided on by lot. God chose Maurice Barassa to receive the $900 we'd raised. And Purim, of course, is the festival of lots, so it was especially appropriate to cast lots to to determine where the money went. All right, so a few takeaways from this portion. Patience. The apostles' last question to their master was a question of timing. They had faith that God would bring about the restoration of the kingdom to Israel, and rightly so. And they trusted the one who would bring it about. What they lacked, at least at that moment, was patience. When we lack patience, our discipline in sanctifying time suffers. Our impatience can lead us to choose to use our time in ways that distract from what matters, being witnesses to the world. 
Of the many things my sabbatical, my recent sabbatical, taught me, I learned to be patient. And I learned it by recognizing that I had not been patient. I was disproportionately fixated on time, on when I thought things should happen, not waiting on God to bring his will about, and not sanctifying my time enough in prayer, supplication, listening for God's voice, letting the Spirit assist, and in fellowship. Other things that were not my concern kept distracting me from being a witness. And speaking of distractions, we must always measure our fulfillment of being sent ones ourselves against the disciples of the first century. We could say they were blessed to have lived a life in a life, or in a time rather, free of modern distractions. But they had no shortage of diversions in the first century. They had made a choice, individually and as a community, regarding how they would spend and sanctify their time together and alone. Their purpose was clear, and it is our purpose as well. They carried out the instructions of their rabbi and spread his teachings to all. Everything else in life took a back seat to that. Their rabbi is our rabbi. And while we are not the prime original apostles, we are called to carry out on their mandate, to be witnesses of Yeshua, his repeaters, his relayers to those farther and farther afield. Finally, I want to encourage you to work on your discipline in being more immediately in prayer. What do I mean by that? First, I mean that there are three times of day when Yeshua and his disciples steadfastly prayed. Morning, afternoon, and evening. Lean into those times. Remember that they are there. Begin and end your day in prayer and pray in the middle of your day. This will ensure that you don't make any choice in what you do with your time that isn't directly preceded or followed by prayer. I also mean that if you are asked to pray for someone, do it right then and there. If you have the thought to pray for something or someone, don't wait until you've accumulated other things to pray about. Stop and pray. This has been a slow learning curve for me, I must admit. I'm not used to continually praying, so at least know that we're in this together. The disciples, after witnessing Yeshua's ascension and upon their return to the upper room, began devoting themselves to the prayers. Then they studied all that they had learned, discussing, arguing, disputing, the very conversations that set in motion the way in which the messianic calling is walked out. Without the early disciples sanctifying their time in that way, we wouldn't have much of a faith. Likewise, let's not only speak the words of Yeshua and the apostles to the world, let's perpetuate how they spent their time together. Will you join me? I hope so. Well, we'll leave it there for this week. Next week is our corporate gathering where we'll be in the Torah portions Chukat and Balak. And let us all gather then together with one heart, as it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. As we devote ourselves to the prayers and to the teachings of the Torah and of the living Torah, Yeshua, to fellowship and to breaking bread.
Our Acts study will resume the following week with Acts chapter 2 and the scene at Shavuot, Pentecost. So read ahead for that study. I've been very excited to study Acts with you, and I hope that I present to you what you need to hear from it. So, until next week, may God bless you, and may he make you and me into the people he wants us to be, for humanity's sake and for God's glory. Shalom.